Hi, Patrick Jean-Baptiste here. Welcome to Negmao Podcast. Sometime in life, it's good to start from the end of life and walk your way back. So my first question to my guest tonight, Tachana Bacchus, the filmmaker, was would she want her funeral to be filmed? Oh, wow. Yeah, because <laughs> we do that, right? Right. Um, the funny thing is, I don't think I would, I would want a celebration. Um, I would want, you know, like, just put the phones down, the cameras down, the, you know, especially the film cameras, the, you know, I don't think I would want it to be filmed. <laughs> I mean, why? Like, what? I, I mean, like, set set the scene for me. Like, like, is it Godfather ish kind of? You know, that first the no. first Godfather, the wedding. You know, where all the set players. What does the set look like for you? Let's say oh, if you had the ability to film your own, how would you? And there's a reason why I'm asking it that way. Uh, sure, it's going to sure. lead into other questions. Yeah. I mean, so I stand by. <laughs> I'd rather it be like fly on the wall and that you know people are just gathering I, I think i try to be love and a super connector i'm naturally a super connector mm -hmm. um and i think from the culture you know we're big on food we're big on family mm -hmm. and so for me um i would want it to be a celebration of my life mm -hmm. i would want we've had a lot of loss in my family and one thing i would have to say is i would want people to be okay to be sad it's okay to be sad that i was that i'd be gone mm -hmm. but hopefully that could be followed by joy that i was here that mm -hmm. they knew me that we yeah. had time together so mm -hmm. i would love there to be a playlist of my favorite music the upbeat stuff the romantic stuff mm -hmm. you know i i would love it if people were dancing and mm -hmm. it was okay to tell funny jokes about things that I did, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. not the jokes my brothers like to tell, because those are mean jokes. I hope nobody right. tells me. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know that people are gathering. I've told my daughter, like, I don't pay, don't pay for like a casket and all that. It's just, you know, do whatever's good for the land. Return me to nature. Have me be a tree, whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I'm not too heavy with it. Um, I hope that my parents aren't around to see mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I think that, um, I hope that the people that are there on that day can understand that my death is part of life mm -hmm. and um, that I did my best, that I loved them, that I was a good person and that they're inspired to go out in the world and be love. That's mm -hmm. what I hope. I hope it's not, heavy and mourning and sorrowful. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, imagine people, uh, you know, the choice people that your family invited to, to say a few words mm. about your professional legacy. Yes. What, what do you, what do you want them to say about your professional legacy? It's Patrick. It's very funny. Um, because I spend so much of my time doing work and grinding it out that so 
the, the, I have to put down my ego a lot of times um, because I think my ego gets in the way of doing the work and getting it out into the world. So I hope people would say that I was tireless at bringing forth content that mattered, right? That filling work, working to fill in the gaps where there wasn't programming that showcased women or people of color or Haitians or Haitian diaspora uh, favorably that I got in there and I, at an older age, figured out how to tell these stories. Um, I didn't take myself too seriously and I learned to tell stories that mattered and that connected with people. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that they, you know, remember that you can come from a Haitian family, not be a doctor or engineer, <laughs> and still do work that means something. That's what I hope they would say. You said uh, your ego yes. gets in the way sometimes. What, 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 is that, what is that? Flesh that out for us. What, what, what do you mean by that? Sure. Well, you know, I, I came to the arts as an actor first, and I am a plus-size woman of color of a certain age. And, you know, when you're performing on camera... Um, similarly, I would say with doing this documentary, when you're trying to bring a story um, to, to the screen, there's so many elements that have to be executed that if you start to get in your head about what it looks like or how people were, will perceive your either performance or the way you write a grant proposal, the way you describe your aesthetic, um, it really can get in the way of actually communicating the story. And I think the easiest way to see that is as an actor, if I get too worried about how I look on camera, I block all authenticity. And so I'd be afraid to go to places that might make me look less beautiful, less professional, that might make me look bad. Uh, I think in this country, being a woman of size is terrible. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's hard. People will always judge how you look, how you wear your clothes, how you hold yourself. I mean, it could be something as simple as my hair. I wear my hair natural. Oh, man, you know, my mother has so much to say about my natural hair. And so if I let that get in the way of communicating a story, then you don't get to connect with the essence of the character. When it comes to this documentary, if I was so worried about, and I will say ego for me is that I'm born in America, really Americanized, and I learned, I'm, a, I'm an emerging filmmaker. I didn't feel like I should be the one to tell Ulrich's story. I didn't feel like I was smart enough, seasoned enough, experienced enough. And so those are the things, or those are those ego things that hold you back. Because if I waited for somebody to come and tell the story, that might not have happened. If I waited till I felt smart enough, Haitian enough, um, you know, professional enough, I also would not be telling this story. How do you how do you take the, those particular obstacles that you're aware of? Basically, that's between you, the camera, and the subject, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you help the subject, like Ulrich? Uh, you know, uh, you know, to sort of remove their obstacles, if they, whether they're similar to yours or, or is that, is that like, 
do you do you see their obstacles that are that 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 you know unbeknownst to them that are sort of getting in the way of of the story that the camera is trying to tell or 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 is it is it a different type of obstacles for the subject sure uh, no i mean yeah. it's it's the obstacles are always they're different but i think the minute you turn a camera on somebody ego comes to the front and i don't mean ego in a necessarily bad way it means you're immediately on a at alert and so most people when you turn a camera on them immediately get concerned about how they look how they sound and when that's the first thing it starts to feel artificial and so specifically with Ulrich, it's it's funny we had to just come up with different ways of capturing him so the first time we were there and met him and and did an interview we i sat him down and we staged everything and it was so formal and it was so stiff and he was so um everything about him that was so magnetic and exciting and charismatic evaporated and it was it was a problem because it was really not interesting to watch and i felt like it wasn't a reflection of who he is as a person and so one of the things we did the next time i it was like the next day we came to film him i just had him stand at the canvas and work on one of the paintings he was working on and we mic'd him and I just told my cinematographer, just let the let the mic go. We're just going to mic him. He knows that he's mic'd, and I know he's going to talk. And, you know, he was able to forget that the camera was there and we were there. And with me, whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I just try to have a conversation. And I let them know, this is, it's just the two of us talking, you know, and so... Part of it is making people feel at ease and letting them know that you're not there to get them. You're just, you know, it's, I'm not out to make you look bad. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here to tell an authentic story. And there might be things that you feel you don't, you don't want people to know or see or are painful. Uh, but I think the beauty and it comes from the authenticity. And I think the biggest thing that I do is I work with, the people that I interview to gain their trust. And that doesn't happen in the first sit down. You know, it doesn't happen in the first shoot. Oftentimes it's spending time with them. It's having a meal with them. It's doing all of these other things so that when you do turn the camera on them, there's already a relationship built and a level of trust. Who is uh, Ulrich Jean-Pierre? <laughs> I know who he is. You know who he is, but... <laughs> Well, I mean, I think if you ask different people who Ulrich Jean-Pierre Ulric Jean was, and I'll say that again, I think if you ask different people who Ulrich Jean-Pierre is, you would get different answers. Mm -hmm. um, to me, Ulrich Jean-Pierre was a friend of my mom's who I knew when I was a child and who I saw once again when I was in my 20s. And he was just a really beautiful man who had this warm huge smile and personality funny charismatic attractive uh that's how i knew him first and then i became aware as i got older that he was also a magnificent visual artist 
um, he creates these paintings, and I will say with visceral impact and uh, historical accuracy. And so he is uh, over the past 40 plus years become a world renowned um, master painter is what, the way I describe him. Um, and somebody who captures Haitian and American history uh, in ways that is so thought provoking and touching that it's hard to tear your eyes away from the canvas. Is he our next uh, uh, Basquiat? Well, in terms of that, you know, the prominence, not not necessarily stylistically, but in terms of prominence, like is he? I mean, has there been anybody since Basquiat at that level of of, of uh, renown? I would say, and I always clarify. Uh, things by saying I'm not an art scholar, right. I'm not an art historian, um, I'm a woman who wanted to tell a story. So is he the next Basquiat in terms of, I would say, in terms of pop culture uh, is where I land in terms of public opinion. Um, mm -hmm. I would say not before this film. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to make this film was because I did, I thought or it should be a household name. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that it also depends on where you ask that question. If you ask that question here in the United States, or mm -hmm. you ask that question in Europe, uh, you would likely get a different answer. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think that so many people utilize his visuals mm -hmm. without crediting him that a lot more people have seen his work than they realize. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other thing is, so many people that even see his work and it may be in the background of a blog post. It's usually in maybe a TikTok or a Instagram video about racial justice in America or black history month mm -hmm. uh, or how we talk about the Haitian revolution as Haiti being the first uh, black free Republic. Oftentimes that's where you'll see an image of his in the background Mm -hmm. while somebody is in the foreground telling a story. And so I think that a lot more people have seen his work without being conscious of it. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I do think that, I don't want to say he's the next Basquiat. I think he's, he's Ulrich. He's, he is singularly himself. Mm -hmm. And where that lands him in the zeitgeist, in pop culture, in art history... Um, I think time will tell. Mm -hmm. My goal is that this documentary about his life and his work um, are the catalyst to make sure that mm -hmm. his name is spoken um, and his work is credited and people are aware that a, a master walks amongst, amongst us. Uh, now, you're both in the visual medium. Yes. Uh, to what extent does you know, you see some overlaps or, or what are some of the differences between uh, the, you know, the moving picture part of what you do versus the static, uh, at least, you know, physically. Because, <laughs> right. uh, I mean, you know, still pictures move too, right? Yeah. So uh, they have their own movement and momentum. Uh, so to what extent do you see as you, as you, you know, some very intimate aspects of uh, documentary, documenting mm -hmm. his, 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 his life and his work. Like, where do you see some overlap with what you do and, and what he does? And, and where do you click and where do you, like, it's 
totally different. You know, the mediums are totally different in terms of how they express things. I, I think at the purest, in the purest sense, it's the subjects that we're capturing, right? So Ulrich paints a lot of uh, Haiti. He puts Haiti in his paintings. That is so much of who he is. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about like the Citadel. That is one of the places that is featured prominently in several of his paintings. So for us, it was go to Haiti, capture the Citadel. So what we're focusing on oftentimes is similar. How we focus on it is radically different. And so for us with you know digital cameras, we have so many chances to capture this. It's hours of footage, mm-hmm. right? Hours of time setting up and taking still shots, but it's still, you know, a day. You know, we plan, we might plan uh, when we were planning to go to Haiti in 2017, it might be a month of planning, mm-hmm. but then it's a day of shooting at the Citadel. It's a day of shooting at the cave where Boakaima, um occurred. You know, it's, so you have these moments and you have a crew. So film is collaborative. Ultimately, it comes down to me as the director, producer to decide what, images we use but you know our cinematographers we would go to a place like Boakaima and they both we had two working Tom Quigley um, and Stephanie Molson they both capture what is of interest to them uh, what catches their eye so we would have a idea of going out we're going to document this site and everybody knew kind of what I was interested in and that might be complete documentation but it's very interesting then you see the individual artists within something will touch their their spirit something will catch their eye stephanie might click a picture in black and white tom might do something in slow motion or just to do an incredible beauty shot and so the difference is ulrich it is he's singular right he somehow the ancestors come to him and he has this spark and then he does research and i think he was mentioning to us that he had researched on Toussaint Louverture for over 10 years before he put his first uh line on a piece of paper to sketch what the painting would become this iconic painting mm-hmm. um and so for me i have so many more opportunities i feel like to engage with different stills and different elements of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not only the individual either still or moving frame, I'm going to have lighting that I can add to it. I'm going to have music. I can do narration. There's so many other elements that I have to come to our final product. And I think with Ulrich, everything that he does is canvas, paint, frame, um, and it's all coming from his singular vision. So you mentioned how, you know, he studied and, and, and uh, Toussaint Louverture for 10 years before he finally decided to put him on canvas. Uh, that kind of fidelity to a subject, was that infectious for you? Or 
uh, in the sense that you can draw from that as someone who is in the you know visual presentation business. Uh, can you give me some instances of you know uh, with your work with him or other projects you've been on where the fidelity to the subject is is is, is paramount? And what does that look like for you? You know. Yeah, I, I will tell you that for me, it looks like uh, this project, not in a, in, a, in a different way in that I had the idea in 2011 that I wanted to do something around Ulrich and the work that he was doing. I didn't know that it was going to be a feature length documentary at the time. Um, and then it, you know, we started, I think our first trip was 26 May of 2016. It's now 2022. So it was a, a commitment to see this project through. And the difference for me is that I jumped right into the fire 100% and said, I'll figure it out along the way. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, research that was happening along the way. I'm also an independent filmmaker. So what I would have done differently and what I will do differently inspired by that fidelity that you're talking about is making sure that future projects that are this important are fully financed before I take a step forward because it's critically important to have that time to do the deep research on the person who you're telling the story on, um, especially somebody who's been doing this work for over 40 years. Um, and I think that I, I also come from a little bit of a project management background and I always tell my teams and clients that there's three lovers. It's time, quality, and money. And they all move according to, you move one, one of the others moves. And so as an independent filmmaker, when you don't have money to do something, you know, it takes longer, mm -hmm. right? And it also can compromise the quality. So for me, the one thing that I had, I'm holding the line on is that it had th this documentary had to try to approach the level of mastery, visual mastery that Ulrich has in his paintings. Um, and I will say when I first did a basic Google search to see, was there a documentary? Was there any video work on him out there? The only thing I could find was somebody had taken a cell phone and this is 2011, 2012, even up to 2015, and they had gone through a gallery and they were talking about this is this painting and this is that painting. But it was clearly somebody who was just interested in the work and did not have the technical aptitude to document the paintings with any level of excellence or mastery. And so to me, it's, it would do him a disservice to make a film that was not beautiful. And that was not, um, did not have a gorgeous, gorgeous presentation of his images. And so for the, for me, it meant I had to find a way to get resources, to get excellent cinematographers who knew how to capture his work in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. I had to take a lot of time to raise money, to go after foundation resources, to try to find independent, um, funders to try to find someone to give us some money so that we could make sure that the sound quality was good and that we have the money that in post-production 
one of the biggest things is going to be making sure that, you know, this film is color corrected and that's a kind of a technical term, but it just means that every frame is colored appropriately. And so that's one of the things that when you come from, you know, filming a master artist who every color, every brushstroke is so carefully crafted, it ups the ante for me as a filmmaker to make sure that every frame is beautiful. And in documentary, that's not always the case, especially when you're talking about using archival stuff. Um, you know, if you're talking about using pictures and um, video from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, um, you know, the image quality doesn't always hold up. So it does present a definite challenge in how do we bring this film to audiences in a way that is beautiful um, and also um, reflects the mastery that Ulrich has crafted for so many years. And I feel like that's, that's, that's the, the, the least that I can do is try to respect what he has done um, and bring the best that we can with the resources that we have. So, so yeah, so that's my next question uh, is, so that's a, that's a perfect representation of what fidelity to the subject is, right? Like mm -hmm. you match his mastery with your ability within the limits of your resources, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, the resources set the limit for you where you know, you know what, I wish I could do X, Y, and Z, but because I can't, I'll do B. Yep. So, uh, one, how often does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and th does that contribute to sort of, you know, lengthening the, uh, you know, uh, the completion, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, this project basically like, like to what extent is, is, is finance, uh, what are the stages of the financing issue that you've been having and where are you now finance wise right. in, in terms of the project uh, uh, scheduling and completion? Yeah. I mean, it's a, yes. The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> it's a big, it's a big question and uh, financing for in indie documentary filmmakers, I think filmmakers in general, um, finding resources are, are so challenging um, and you're lucky if you have a community that you can pull on. You're lucky if you have peers who have gear and believe in your vision. And so I would say that ideally for me, a film like this, maybe six months research, uh, maybe with a research assistant, and then two years of filming and post-production, maybe three years um, would be ideal. And most filmmakers that are doing stuff independently, it's, it could take up to 10 years to do a film like this. So again, our first, our very first frame was shot in 2016. And so it, it's looking to be kind of like maybe six, seven years, but by the time we get out of this. Um, and so financing wise, we thankfully had a wonderful, um, gentleman named Bruce Molson who gave us our first chunk of money to go down to New Orleans to film Ulrich and 
Um, his daughter is my producing partner on this film, Stephanie, and our first cinematographer. And basically, I had a conversation with him. He said, I'm interested in doing some business with you. And I told him about the idea. And I said, I think that there's a story here. And he said, go down to New Orleans. And we shot for, I think, four days. And we came home, looked at the stuff. And he, I said, yeah, we've got a story. We've got more of a story than I even thought we had. Um, and at the time, then you start to think about, you start to dream about, like, what is that film going to look like? And what will we need to accomplish that? Um, where will we have to travel? So I always knew that going to Haiti would be a dream if we could do that. Um, you know, and then it's so many millions of things come into um, the decision-making factor. Are you hiring people in Haiti? Are you hiring people in the U.S.? Are you traveling people? Do you have the money to travel people? Um, and thankfully, we did m the majority of our shooting before COVID hit because that's a whole nother financial obstacle and safety obstacle that you have to deal with. Um, but the way things for us operate is when we get a chunk of money, when I can write a grant um, and get it financed um, or approved, then when that money comes in, we do the next leg of work. Um, when I have some money, I have a production coordinator that works with me. When I run out of money, it's just me in this office moving this project forward until I get the next bit of money. Or I you know, can call Stephanie and, uh, and sometimes our other cinematographer, Tom, who I've worked with, Tom Quigley, for years, um, is an amazing individual. And I'm going on record to say when we were going to Haiti, we didn't have all the money we needed uh, to go to Haiti. And I said, hey, Tom, I don't even know if I can pay you the rate. And he said, I've never been to Haiti. Just get me to Haiti. And I said, Tom, I don't know that I can feed you for the five days that we're planning on spending there. And he was like, hey, just get me to Haiti. And I think that you need to have people, if you don't have money, you need to have people like that who are willing to get in the trenches with you and donate their time because they believe in your vision. And when you have that, um, you know, you can do more work, but as a producer, I'm also committed to not just asking people for free labor. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not fair to them. It's not fair to the project. And what happens is when you only have people who volunteer, you cannot continue the pathway forward because mm -hmm. people have to make money. Yeah. So, um, so the short answer is when you don't have the money, it definitely lengthens the time of the project. Um, we've recently had received a grant from the Independence Public Media Foundation. Uh, we were nominated for a grant. And um, I think it's important to talk about money. It was a $25,000 grant. Mm -hmm. And we were finally, after five years, able to take a little bit of money to pay ourselves for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, but it also allowed us to hire an editor. Mm -hmm. And we would not have been able to do that. I had been editing our proof, our work samples, our five-minute work sample or 20-minute work sample to then apply for funding. But it's the chicken or the egg. I'm not a great editor. I'm a, sol I'm a passable editor. I'm mm -hmm. you know, pretty much self-taught, took a few classes here and there. But the biggest challenge I find that you run into as an indie filmmaker, especially somebody like me who came in in my 30s and I'm now in my late 40s, is you don't know what you're doing. And... There are so many aspects to filmmaking. That's why it's collaborative. 
So if you have to learn how to write a grant, how to write a proposal for what the story is, edit that. Maybe you have to film it with your cell phone because you can't afford a cinematographer. So much of what you're creating is subpar while you are trying to raise those resources. And it's hard sometimes for people to see through the shaky editing, <laughs> crazy camera work, that there is a story that should be funded. Mm -hmm. And so it is really chicken or the egg. My process has been every time I've run out of money, I've then had to go back and do the editing and write more grant proposals. Um, and film grants are incredibly competitive, so hard to get. And so I will say in a flip reality, and I think that is important to talk about what is possible, um, is that there would be more early stage funding for films like this and for women filmmakers, filmmakers that come from underrepresented populations, because I believe that if you want new voices, you need to nurture them from the inception. Mm -hmm. And film is something that is difficult even if people will say now cell phones and technology makes it really cheap um yeah but if you don't have your rent paid if you don't have food on the table if you don't have childcare, how do you get out and spend that time capturing those images and turning it into something while you're learning how to do those things well mm -hmm. that's a very long answer but i think it's important to talk about um you know we're six years into this process that could have been two, three years if we had had somebody who came in early stage and said, yeah, this man's story needs to be told. Here's some money and here's some support to make sure that it stays on track. So I know you're not there yet, but is it better? It sounds like you're saying that it's better if, if you know, since it's a finite amount of pool of money that's out there, uh, that it's better to get funded early stage or or split it up between early and the distribution phase when you finally uh, oh, is that the whole other set of challenge like oh that's a whole other set of challenges and it's not the the thing is it's not finite right yeah money is just it's like water it's like air money is everywhere mm -hmm. we just don't often have it yeah so, <laughs> right I mean, you know what you think about right. Right. how much money there is on this planet or what we call money, we could eliminate this and be made a little radical. We could eliminate homelessness, right? We could, yes. everybody could have a place to live. Yep. It's where we choose to invest yeah. our money, right? It's mm -hmm. what we value. Yes. And so um, what I say that it's important to support early stage new voices, that's if you, if you really say you want new voices, Somebody like me does not walk into the film world understanding how to make a film. I have a story that I'd love to tell, but there's so many things that you have to learn to even be able to communicate that in that medium. And some people will say, hey, you got to take your knocks. You got to learn. You got to be scrappy. You got to. And that mm -hmm. has its benefits, too. But mm -hmm. if we are trying to get to some level of equity in storytelling, right? And whose stories matter, then there has to be more support. And when I say support on the front end, it's supporting the artist, 
right? And the stories they want to tell. So part of that is making sure that they can survive, right? They have their, their basic needs are met. And it doesn't, look, indie artists are thrifty. So it doesn't mean that you have to have some luxury place, but just making sure their housing is stable, making sure that they have internet because they're going to have to send these files back and forth. Mm -hmm. Even having a hard drive. When I first started out, I didn't have money for an external hard drive. There's a time, and I love naming names and acknowledging people. There was a time we were stuck with the film because we didn't have an external hard drive and we didn't have the money to get one. And a, and a lovely filmmaker here in Philadelphia named Ted Passon, um, we had uh, through an organization I'm a part of called SIFT Media, Sisters in Film and Television Media 215, uh, Nadine Patterson through SIFT Media had a conversation here in Philadelphia, um, which was called like On the Table, where it happens multiple places around the city where people talk about issues that are important. And she hosted one called How Can you know, uh, Philadelphia Help Black w Women Artists or something like that. And Ted Paston was there. And, you know, I, I talked by talk and one of the things they said was, you know, when you don't have, when you're trying to just make sure you're, you're keeping the lights on, you don't have money for these other things, a new computer, a hard drive. And at the end of the conversation, Nadine said, who's committed to doing something for black women artists in Philadelphia? And Ted said, hey, I have a hard drive I, I, I can give you. It's one of our hard drives. We don't need them all. And he made it happen. And for a while, that was the only hard drive we had. He mm -hmm. made his offices available to another member of our cohort who could go and use his editing software. Mm -hmm. So it's not just just cash. Cash is really important. Um, but it is supporting the artist, making sure they're stable. Um, and then it is the money to actually execute on the, the film idea. Mm -hmm. So how, how are we bringing people together that know actually how to film? How are we paying the cinematographer? How are we feeding these people when they're there? You have to get insurance. So mm -hmm. especially if you're trying to go into a museum, you need like a million dollar insurance policy, if not more. Um, you know, then you need the website. So there's all these costs that are associated with getting documenting this story. And so I think it is funding the artist. I think it's funding early stage development. Um, and then giving them support on how to raise money, how to connect with foundations that are believe in the similar work, how to get, you know, if you're going to go after grants, how to write a grant or be able to deal, make a deal with a, an accomplished grant writer for a percentage. That's not something I've been able to do. So I'm still writing my own grants. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to distribution, and I'm sorry, all my answers are always long. <laughs> oh, no, that's awesome. It's great. This is this is long form. So it's, <laughs> please go on. <laughs> okay. And yeah. then when you get this distribution, I mean, the thing that thankfully I learned early on is that when you finish the film, like you're not done. You still need about 10 to 15, maybe $20,000 additionally to deliver the film which means that it has to go through quality assurance. It has to go through all of these things just to make sure that the film is ready to hand off to whether it's a streaming platform, a distributor. Um, so, and then, then there's the marketing if you're going to do yeah. it independently. Um, so the costs continue. They just continue. So it's not just about funding early stage. It's about funding for sustainability. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. So when you, as you were doing, uh, you know, the more and more you interact with uh, Ulrich Jean-Pierre and what, as a Haitian American, <laughs> what, 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 what has this interaction that I know you said you've known him most of your life, but as you watch his work, which is, you know, distinctly quote unquote Haitian, right? Or maybe it's more subversive in the sense, because I was talking to uh, Dr. Asilien and, and one of the things that, I came out of that interview was like his work is in sort of the stereotypical pastoral uh, Haitian women in the market uh, with a shoje on their head, you know, that kind of like, it's quite subversive in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, what has that done for you as, as, as that made you kind of think, uh, you know, deeper or feel your Haitianness, if you will, as you interact more and more with him and his work or, well, what, what what has that experience been like for you to to see yourself through his work as as, as a Haitian? Um, well, I will say that just to clarify, I mean, I knew when I think about my experience with Ulrich as not the artist, but as the person, um, I remember, you know, meeting him when I was about eight. But then, you know, he wasn't in my, I was a kid. He's my mom's friend. I really was not paying attention. And then they, uh, I think Dr. Axelian, who you mentioned, who is a contributing producer on this film, um, thankfully, because she's amazing, uh, her, she did a coffee table book with some uh, colleagues about Ulrich's work. And I remember going to an event in New York with my mom. And I think I was in my 20s. That's when I reconnected. And again, it was something my mom wanted to do. I really, it, it was not for me. Yes, mm -hmm. I was Haitian. Um, yes, it was kind of cool, but it was history. It was never my forte. So I went, it was nice to see him. And then it wasn't until years later that when I was learning how to create film and I kept hearing these conversations about the lack of positive representation of people of color in the media, that um, there was a spark. And it wasn't until I saw his work you know, reflected back in posts about racial justice uh, and on Instagram. And, and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That, I think that's Ulrich's work. Um, and so for me, early on, and I think before I started this project, it wasn't really like a point of pride. It was, you know, that was his thing. Um, I, I was proud to be Haitian. I definitely came up in the 80s and 90s when it was tough to be a, a kid of Haitian parents or Haitian descent. Yeah. Um, but my mother at home was always, you know, don't let anybody make you feel less than. And she was always about making sure we, we knew in our house that we came from uh, proud people, that we came from people that overthrew our masters, um, that we didn't believe that there were masters, that we were human beings. And not only did we... Be, fight for our independence we inspired and and supported the fight for independence around the world so i knew that at home but in the world i was also raised to assimilate into the american culture and so 
you know, people by the way I sound would not know that I'm Haitian. Um, coming up in high school, as a matter of fact, I was called an Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside. And so for me, I knew that I was interested in telling Ulrich's story. I didn't have any idea how much being exposed to his work firsthand was going to impact me. And I will say when we went on that first week of filming, he had an exhibit at Xavier University um, called The Ties That Bind. And I walked into this small um, exhibit space. And I, actually, it's not small. It was several rooms. And I just remember walking in and feeling like somebody had kicked me in my solar plexus. I doubled over and I just needed a moment. And I was so emotional. I'm still so emotional remembering that moment of standing in front of his work. And I didn't realize it was the first time I had ever seen myself and my family um, and my ancestors reflected positively. I didn't realize how much impact hearing all those things about being Haitian, being the lowest of low, having AIDS, and did not realize being just poor, singularly, that one narrative. You know, I didn't realize that how much that had impacted my psyche until I stood in front of Ulrich's work. And it was such a balm on my soul. It was so visceral and impactful. And the more I engaged with the work, the more I spent time with him, um, understanding the cost of bringing this work to the canvas, understanding how he is in many ways a man out of place and time. He paints like a, a Renaissance master from you know an earlier day who could not possibly be walking amongst us. He lives in New Orleans, but clearly Haiti is in every ounce of his soul, in every breath that he takes. And so it has been so it profoundly moving um, to just be on this journey where I get to see this work, that I get to learn about my ancestors. Because I didn't know, because I grew up in the American education system where we don't talk about Haiti. We don't talk about how the Louisiana Purchase, you know, helped expand this country, that we wouldn't have, America would not be this size had the Haitian uh, revolution not happened. And that's something I learned from Cecile or Dr. Excellent. I didn't know about Marie-Jean Lamartinier. You know, I didn't know so much about our heroes and our Every and, and, and our everyday people. I didn't know about Bokaima. I didn't know that there was a place I could go and learn these things and actually see them. And so Ulrich's work has broken me open in ways that are immeasurable, are priceless. I am um, forever changed because of my involvement in this project, because of seeing his work. Um, I can't not talk about it. I can't not show people his work. Um, I am so proud of where I come from. And honestly, this film is a love letter to Haiti. Uh, Ulrich's work is what took me 
to Haiti for the first time. All of, I have three older brothers. They have all been to Haiti. One was born there, but because, you know, when I was coming up, my mom had done some uh, translation for Haitian refugees and it, she couldn't go back to Haiti. I didn't know that until I was an adult. I just thought my parents, you know, couldn't afford to go back. I believe the narrative that everybody else tells you. I didn't realize because of the political situation, my mom was added to a hit list and could not go back because she was fighting for Haitian independence in America. Mm -hmm. And so I had no access to Haiti. And, you know, I, 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 it's, it's a, I, I feel oftentimes embarrassed or ashamed that I had not claimed my culture, claimed my place as a child of the diaspora. Um, and, and oftentimes felt, look, and to be real, right? I don't speak Creole. I don't speak French. I understand a little bit of French. We are not the kindest to our kids in the diaspora that don't understand. You know, it, sometimes I would try to say something and my family would crack up and they'd make fun of me. And I was like, that's good. I'm not saying nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think this journey, um, I, I know I want to take the film back to Haiti. I know that the film is going to be dubbed in Creole uh, because I wanted to have the widest access possible. Um, I hope that part of my journey is learning French, is learning Creole. Um, you know, one of the things that I ended up doing on this journey was learning to cook a lot of the home food, learning to cook my moulin, uh, aubergine, lombi. And that was something that was easier access to me. Mm -hmm. um, but so there's no way for me to quantify or qualify how connecting with Oryk has changed my life. There's just no way. It's immeasurable. Mm -hmm. And and do you think your 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 artistic, your aesthetic, your your the way you move about about the world artistically is Haitian, even though you may not have the you know the language down pat. You know, you're just learning the food. Is there something in in your vision and how you see what he does through him that is this that you feel? You, you feel close. It sounds like you're saying you feel close to that. That, that, is, that is being Haitian, right? Being able to see through his eyes and get it. Because you grew up with your mom, who's, you know, like Haitian, Haitian, right? So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean I, that rubs off, right? It's not like, you know, you grew up in a vacuum, right? <laughs> like, I grew yeah. up with both my parents until I was 11. Yeah. And even still, my dad was my life. And I'm going to tell you, like, it's funny. I tell friends and we talked about this yesterday with some friends i remember like i growing up it didn't matter that we were in america we were in a haitian household so you know i'm the last of the four which is why i didn't learn the language i think my mom was just tired by the time i came along but you know i remember things like we had to we couldn't eat pizza or chicken wings with our hands we had to ask for permission my dad was very strict and, you know, we had to say it in Papa, you know, whatever, in French or Creole. Um, I think in French, um, we were reading the Bible mm -hmm. all the time. And, you know, people remark about, ignorant people sometimes will remark, <laughs> remark about my diction. But I'm going to tell you, coming up, I had to read the Bible out loud. My mom was always on me about being a lady. Um, and so 
Haiti, like the the music, like I always one of things is going to Haitian events and having my and seeing my parents dance together. You know, and I, you know, and you call it the like now I jokingly call it the Haitian two step when you see you know the elders, and it's but it's something that I've taught my daughter. You know, I I went and started looking for Haitian music and. Um, so I think as an artist, I think how hate being Haitian, uh, shows up in me is that I value these stories and I think I see a value in them when other people don't. And I'm committed to bringing that story to mainstream lenses so people can see them. So I think, um, I'm a hybrid. I'm American born of, of Haitian parents, you know? And so I have that ability to, to take all the things that um, I enjoy. Like I hated history growing up and it wasn't until I started telling Ulrich's story that I realized I hated history because it was the history of old white men. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my history. Mm-hmm. I couldn't connect with it. I couldn't engage with it. So when I, when I came to approach this film, for me, it was like one of the most important things was it couldn't be boring. It couldn't be like this, this tired old white man's story. It mm-hmm. had to have the flair, the flavor, the essence of what it meant to be Haitian. And that means that the music, you know, that there would be Haitian music, that even, you know, the titles and graphics mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. would have some of that influence. Um, and this goes back to that question about decisions that are made you know i have some ideas about how i want to do things um and and who i would like to work with or how i would like to you know put collaborations together of haitians and americans working together on this film and sometimes i have to sacrifice on those ideas if the resources aren't there Mm -hmm. but thankfully we're in early production early post-production and I'm having conversations um, and writing grant proposals. <laughs> and I hope that we'll be able to raise the last $150,000 to finish this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. Wow. You, you in post-production now early. Wow. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Uh, so uh, any final thoughts of uh, where people, I know it's on your website uh, where people can donate and, um, and, uh, you know, reach out to you if they have any questions about helping you, you know, with funds or any sort of other resources you might still need at this stage of, of, of this documentary. Sure. I mean, the easiest way to find uh, the website is the it's ulrichdoc.com, U-L-R-I-C-K-D-O-C.com. So Ulrich's name, doc for documentary. Um, that's the easiest way. There's a donate button. Um, they're tax deductible donations because we work under a fiscal sponsor. Um, you can connect with us there. You can join the mailing list there so you can keep uh, abreast of where the film is in the process and where it will be headed. Um, you know, I, I'm very easy to, to reach on social media. I do tell people uh, my response time is often terrible because I'm in the trenches by myself so often just trying to advance not just this projects but other projects as well mm-hmm. and so um yeah i mean people that i think one of the best things is to talk about the film talk about the need for the film 
Um, we've been using the hashtag Ulrich Doc. Um, and I, I really want to give him his flowers while he's here. I think that so often um, we take from artists and we enjoy the fruits of their labor or their, we enjoy their labor without turning back and, 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 and letting them know what it means to us. And so um, I think for me, it's, it's really just about getting this film done and out into the world because I've said I, I don't want another person, another young person to look out into the world and not see themselves until they're in their 40s. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh so I'm you know I'm reachable on social media um we have a Ulrich the website we have a Instagram page also at Ulrich Doc there's a Ulrich Facebook um I think I think there's a Facebook page if not there'll be one launching soon um yeah and I think that the other thing I will say is that Ulrich is one person, right, from our diaspora. Mm-hmm. There are so many of our stories that have yet to be told. Yeah. And I, I, as much as I don't want to encourage people to have to go through the challenges that I've had to, um, what I'd love to see is those that have the resources come together with those that are trying to do this work and support them and uplift them because – Oftentimes what happens is we get one story done and then we tap out because it's just too hard. It's too hard. It takes too long. There's too many sacrifices. And um, so, you know, my final thought is, yeah, we're an early post. We still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I would love the support. Um, But I also would love for people to look. And the reality is, let's let me also say that we have people in Haiti that have incredible needs and so it's sometimes I feel I feel bad trying to raise money for this film when other people need stable housing. Yeah. When other people need education, when they need safety, and Lord knows what's going on. Um, and I think is and and there's environmental impacts going on, and still the impacts from the earthquake. So what I'm hoping is that when this film is complete, it can be a catalyst for awareness and fundraising for pressing issues in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And so I can't commit for the whole team, but I know a percentage of whatever, if there's ever any revenue from this film on my part, will go to Haitian organizations to work that's being done on the ground in Haiti. And also for people that are trying to get settled here. Mm -hmm. So there's... Tatiana, I love it. I love it. (laughs) You're good. You're good. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, this is. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. <laughs>